Hey there, fam. Hey, hey, hey. It's Friday, and we are back with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Mike Huddy, LCPC. So come on in and make yourself at home because it's family time. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, it's Friday. Fun, 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 fun. Sorry, y'all, just gotta say, is anybody like this many years old as me that you remember this song by Rebecca Black, Friday? <laughs> I mean, song is probably a bit generous, a bit of a stretch, but I feel like this was maybe one of the very first YouTube videos I ever saw. I think it was a very new platform when this came up. And it's an awful song. I'm sorry, Becky. Okay, it's it's terrible. Oh, but for real, I mean, it, it's so wrong that it's right. And at this point, it's legendary. So for kicks and giggles, I'm going to just slide a link to this dumpster fire along with the more pertinent resources and citations for today. But all of that can be found over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. So hit up the blog, look for this episode's number and all the things. Okay, so for starters, Rebecca Black aside, let's have a little bit of a brief check in, y'all. How are we doing, fam? I have to be honest, it's been a week over here because an upper respiratory infection, it slowly wormed its way through all five of us. And I, I have to say, I was the last to fall. So I thought I had escaped it. And then all of a sudden came in the congestion and the sneezing and the frog voice. Overall, I have to say I'm feeling much, much better. But I still have a little bit of a froggy frog situation going on here. And hopefully that doesn't deter folks from uh, engaging in the episode. But what I will say is, fortunately, I recorded with our guest, Mr. Michael Hetty, before this cold hit me. So the bulk of our time together today, I won't sound like a complete amphibian. And hey, that's, that's great news, right? But I also just want to say a special thanks to our guest, Mike, because here's the deal, y'all. I. I thought this OCD versus GAD, GAD, however you want to say it. I tend to say GAD. He tends to say GAD. For newer fam, you might be like, what? I don't know what either is. We're talking about generalized anxiety disorder, okay? And overall, I, I thought this would be an interesting conversation. And, and then somewhat of a quick topic of discussion. How much could be said? But never underestimate my verbosity. And as we got into it, and if you were with us last week, because we started this conversation, he and I, last week, I was like, hold up, hold up. Like, I, I only had more questions, and I felt like I needed a moment to process. I was like, I got to chew on this. I got to digest it a little bit. So I have more to say on it. And Mike, who is a very busy guy fan, he was like, hey, I've got you. That's all right. I'm not too busy for the fam here. 
So thanks, Mike. We really appreciate that you and your golden voice are back at our family table to talk about this a bit further. And with that being said, I also want to say, if you're tuning in this week and you didn't happen to hear last week's episode, I'm doing what I can here at the beginning of our conversation to somewhat summarize where we left off. But I would definitely recommend pausing here, heading back to that episode and giving it a quick listen first, because I think it gives a lot of really helpful context for today's chat. And you know what? We like to keep things in context, right? ICBTers? <laughs> oh, well, that's a little something, something for the ICBT treatment crowd. But yeah, I mean, context, it's important whether you are new to ICBT or not. And so to that end, for our newer fam, I will just say that ICBT, if you're like, ICB what? You're like, OCD, you got GAD, GID, ICBT. I'm going to throw in ERP. It's coming, y'all. So prepare. But there are a lot of acronyms when we get into these kind of conversations. So I try to do my best to unpack it for anybody who's new and just as a refresher. But ICBT stands for Inference-Based Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And that terminology is actually going to be pretty important because as we dive into how we understand and conceptualize obsessions, which is the whole thing today, right? Like the title said it all. It's going to be pretty important for us to also understand ICBT, for us to understand inferential confusion. So if you're new to that, don't, don't be afraid. We got you. So we're going to get into more about that this episode, but also just to keep us all up to speed with our uh, sisters and brothers from a different mother here. Uh, let me remind us all just a bit more about Mike. If you're new to Mike, he is the co-owner and co-director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute of Maryland, where he specializes in the treatment of OCD, anxiety, and related conditions. He is a faculty member of the International OCD Foundation's Training Institute, as well as a co-chair of the Inference Space CBT Special Interest Group. He's a regular presenter at conferences, and he is regularly providing consultation and has participated in numerous, numerous professional seminars regarding OCD, Exposure and Response Prevention, which is ERP, and ICBT, Inference Space CBT. And so he's a part of the fam here, and he's also a return guest, not just from last week, y'all, but he was on season one for two episodes. See, I'm noticing a pattern here, Mike. <laughs> two episodes. It's like the minimum I can manage when I'm getting together with Mr. Hetty here. So please do welcome Mike back to the OCD family community. So grateful that you are here. And hey, y'all, enough of the froggy frog, right? Let's just get to it. I appreciate you coming back. Thanks. And so where we left off was when we're thinking about GAD or GAD, and we're thinking about when it reaches this pathological or disordered level, one of the emphases, and if I'm misquoting or mischaracterizing this, please correct me, but you were talking about how you act, how you cope, how you respond to it is where GAD either comes in or doesn't. From a diagnostic standpoint, yeah, you you would need the worry, which first step one is sort of excessive, right? It's it's causing distress. It's related to somatic complaints. So it's not just a normal worry that got brushed off your shoulder and you moved on. Right. But I do think it is a normal worry that you end up wrestling with 
in an unhelpful way that escalated not only the intensity of the worry itself, but of the problematic or unhelpful response to it. Right. right? Yeah. And so one of the things we talked about earlier, too, was we were talking about if this is pathological, we're talking about it's really excessive, it's unproductive time spent. And we also had to look at how we were defining worry versus worrying. That was one of the things that we were talking about. And so from your clarification, basically the conclusion to doubt, if it's reasonable, if it's correct, if it's based on evidence in the here and now, like we were talking about in the cancer example with mole or lump or whatever that got biopsied. In terms of the way one responds to the cancer, whether it's a diagnosis or not, say they do have the diagnosis, but even if they don't, and it's not just about one content-specific area, you're going to see that worrying generalized. <laughs> Imagine that. But that's the difference. That's where GAD would be if we're talking about it's a correct here now reasonable doubt, reasonable worrying process, but it's still excessive and it's unproductive. And so there was kind of like a two-part conversation we had on that about what does it mean to be unproductive and how do we find that and, and really understand that. But also in talking about reasonable worry versus obsessional worry. And so one of the things you were focusing on in the trajectory of your learning in differentiating GAD and OCD, as I understood it, was that you were looking at the inferential confusion piece because that was huge in being able to define what is obsession versus worry. And the compulsive reactions, mental or otherwise, can happen in both GAD and OCD. And so getting too caught up on what's happening in the compulsions doesn't help distinguish it, which is why you were more on the continuum before, but actually looking at the definition of obsession was different. Am I summarizing yes, correctly? That's, that is a fair summary. I think that only looking at something we call a compulsion right, is a clunky and imprecise way of determining if something is OCD or not, because we can misdiagnose, call it OCD, it's actually something else because there's, quote, compulsions present. So compulsion as a definition mm -hmm. within OCD has a functional relationship to mm -hmm. obsession. Mm -hmm. So to me, a compulsion itself is less of the important thing to define Obsession seems to be more of an important thing to define. And with my growing understanding and awareness of inferential confusion, adding a precise way to distinguish obsessional doubts unique to OCD, predictive of OCD, versus mixed anxiety disorders groups where they had much less inferential confusion, subclinical levels of inferential confusion, where the reasoning would be said to be more normal, mm -hmm. right? I.e. the biopsy example from earlier. And when we understand that piece of how obsessions are, are arrived at or constructed, to me, it, it's a game changer for how we can understand the difference between GAD and OCD. But my huge point here is like, to the extent that it's valuable for the client, right? And I think I've mentioned that before, like if treatment is working, Great. Okay. Right. Concerned with, with parsing out the specific diagnostic label. If it's not, it might be that we missed inferential confusion or that we're treating inferential confusion with a thing that isn't best to be treating it. 
Right. I I have a whole set of notes on my, my spin-off on inferential confusion. But before I I go into that, staying kind of where we are at this moment, I want to say, as I was chewing on this, and we had our first part of this conversation a couple weeks ago. So just for the fam here to understand, we're revisiting this because I had to mull it over. <laughs> and, I, and I got chatty with Mike and I was like, oh, my gosh. So graciously, Mike, you have come and, and continued this conversation with me. But what was interesting as I was taking some notes on this is I was thinking, OK, so if the disordered, if, if it's that we spent unproductive time and we need to keep focus on the obsession. But the disordered function, if we're thinking about GAD, is also in looking at how we're acting, how we're coping, how we're responding to it. How do you differentiate then that unproductive time not being compulsion? Because I, I think some people would define compulsion that way. You're saying how we're reacting to the obsession. Is that in excess? And yes, is it a reasonable problem in the here and now? Okay. How we're responding to it then does feel like we're just parsing out. We're saying don't get too focused on the compulsion, but how we're responding to it sometimes is the compulsion. Am I making sense or, or do you well, see think, where think, I'm going with that? Yeah. I think where we're getting tripped up here is, is we're, we're, we're looking at existing definitions and existing understandings of a phenomena like yeah. a compulsion and we are going we're bumping up against an idea that we think is settled like this is what a compulsion is right but it's actually a lot more flexible than that it's a lot more subjective than that like if you took a person who experienced a traumatic event they may go through excessive kinds of cleaning or excessive kinds of safety behaviors around protecting their children protecting their home we could argue that's compulsive, but that's a trauma response. Right. So does it define a disorder to say there's compulsivity here? And so the, that dance between obsession and, and then its, its partner, compulsion, it gets really imprecise. It gets really clunky. It gets really muddy when we say, Let, we're going to define this entire diagnostic category by the presence of a compulsion. The line between safety behaviors. Mm-hmm would say panic disorder mm -hmm. and compulsion is blurry at best. Right. So we don't define panic disorder as an OCD offshoot, panic disorder with safety behaviors. But again, when we are looking at this process, there's these lines are very permeable as to what the definitions are. Well, so and, all right, and sorry to jump in there, but also last time we talked, we talked about this in terms of OCRD, uh, OCD-related disorders, uh, how there's a number of them that do have compulsory factors, which is why they kind of get umbrellaed with OCD as an OCD-related disorder, but they're completely separate. So we might have BFRBs, that's body-focused repetitive behaviors, or body dysmorphic disorder. There's a number of them, but those two come to mind where, yes, the compulsion alone doesn't differentiate it. And I can't recall, I'd have to look it up specifically, actually, look at that. I have my, my desk reference open to GAD, but I don't remember specifically. I don't think they use the word compulsion, do they? They don't. Mm. And I think that's the problem because it's like you don't want to get so caught up on the language that you're missing the forest through the trees. But also, 
the language is what defines the differences, right? Right. And, and the model by which you're understanding the conceptualization of a disorder is oh, huge. Is, is you can even see it as it's written in the DSM for, for OCD. It's talking about intrusive unwanted thoughts, classically conditioned avoidant experiences, right? So there's a model that's informing this criteria. Right. And when we look at the model that's informing the GAD criteria, it doesn't distinguish worry from worrying. Right. Right. And to me, that's problematic mm -hmm. because I, I've not been with someone who had a what if thought and then just moved on with their life. They have a what if thought and then they tell this elaborate, immersive story that then they respond to in unhealthy ways. And how do I distinguish that from OCD again, if I need to, and again, I come back to, well, it doesn't help me to sort of look at whether or not there's compulsions or safety behaviors or repetitive neutralizing behaviors or whatever you want to call it, I want to go and find out what was the first thing that set this whole thing in motion? What was the domino that fell first? And to me, that adds clarity, Yeah. right? Yeah. Another thing that helps to differentiate it, we talked a little bit about it, but it's not a perfect kind of definitive line fix this the wrong word uh and you were talking about this in terms of looking at the more broader kind of metacognitive approaches as well but in looking at like if something is egocentric versus egodystonic right and so in terms of this we explored a couple different examples we explored the cancer example in terms of going and having the biopsy and then we also looked at relationship OCD, which is messy and made me have some bigger questions that I could go down a rabbit hole, but I'll try to not to get too zoomed into the weeds on our OCD. But one of the things that I was thinking about is then when we think of things even like healthy anxiety, okay, would you classify healthy anxiety in general under general anxiety disorder as a part of that? I mean, I'm supposed to look at it as its own thing. Illness, anxiety disorder, according to the DSM. I think most of us in the specialization would look at that as more focused in the OCD world or the GAD world. But we run into the same confusions as we would with ROCD, right? right. Where, where, again, do you define a disorder by a compulsive, and you, you're the one defining it as compulsive because it looks compulsive, element. And that's one way to do it. I don't think that's wrong. It's just, it's not the only way to look at it, right? It's kind of a blunt instrument. Right. And I would look at health anxiety the same way I would look at ROCD, which is that these aren't real things. Like in, in a silo, these, right? They, you have right. These are, these are, yeah, these are phenomena presented to me in the office. And one really useful way of breaking the phenomenon down is to go, how did you arrive at whatever this conclusion was, whether it's about your health, whether it's about your relationship, how did you come to that specific conclusion? Mm -hmm. And if we can identify that this was arrived at for very objective, contextual reasons, right? Most people would arrive at this. Then I think we're not looking at obsessionality as much as we're looking at a, a worry that took you to a place of intolerance for uncertainty, a worry that took you to a place of needing to know for sure, right? right. 
but not necessarily obsessionality when we look at it through the inferential confusion lens. Right. So that kind of creates the foundation for my going back to the egocentonic versus egodystonic point. Because, and again, I don't think I've ever diagnosed health anxiety as just like an illness related because it's one of many content areas. And Generally, if you have generalized anxiety, it's it's not specific, right? It's due to an illness or due to a substance use or whatever. It is more generalized. Also, within OCD, we know the beast of OCD to show up in many different ways and change throughout time. And we're people that are going to change throughout time. So I would see most things evolving and most learning, most processing evolving over the course of time. But in terms of the egodystonic versus egocentonic, so I started thinking about this, and I'm going to use myself as an example. I have red hair. It's strawberry blonde, but it's a, it's a version of red. And I have 8,012 moles approximately, just going to guess. I have abnormal moles, I, but they look alike to other abnormal moles. I have little moles. I have all sorts of things. And my dad does as well. I have his skin type, certainly. I got that. Now, my dad has survived thus far a stage four diagnosis of melanoma cancer, which by all means he should have died a decade ago and somehow has beat the odds. And because of his cancer diagnosis, I started, especially around that time, going, wow, I have so many moles that I I don't even know how I could keep track of all of them reasonably. So I started going to a dermatologist. Now, I could say I'm going to be preventative because I don't want to get skin cancer, especially a terminal skin cancer that at the end, for all different reasons and and the effects and chemos and different things, are impacting my dad's life and, you know, what will lead to the end for him. But at the same time, I can also focus on I'm probably going to die because I have moles and, and I can use those facts out of context. I can use the personal experience that my dad had it and almost died and we're all going to die, but I'm probably going to die of skin cancer, right? And so there can be both an egocentonic, it's reasonable, because redheads are more likely to get skin cancer. People with more than 50 moles or whatever are likely. People with a family history are more likely. Yes. And I can do preventative things like use a sunscreen, which I'm a big advocate for, whether it's in makeup or just general sunscreen. My husband will tell you, like, the sun's going down. And I'm like, but the sun is still out. We need to all sunscreen up. And it drives him crazy. But he does it <laughs> because I push it. If I weren't there, he went to it. And so we could say that's egocentric and being preventative, but also I can worry in excess and it can be egodystonic that I'm probably going to die from skin cancer, even though my dad has not passed yet, but he has had it. And my version of OCD can tangle with that, right? So both can be true. If I look at it from the lens of this is a normal worry. I have all these risk factors plus the dad card here. So this is, it's not looking great for me. It's reasonable to do these preventative measures and have worry about that. If I, if I don't use sunscreen, crap, I went out and we didn't have the sunscreen, whatever, right? 
But it also can be egodystonic of I'm probably most likely going to die because this is what's happening for me and this is my skin type. And so uh, I, I see how both it's kind of like the chicken or the egg or is the glass half full or half empty. I can see both. Which is one of the reasons why egosyntonic and egodystonic is, again, by itself a clunky way to make the distinction between these disorders if we need to make a distinction between these disorders, mm -hmm. right? This idea we can find plenty of people who are having near delusional, low insight obsession thoughts that are egosyntonic in their current state of mind, but they're obsessional. We can find people who have egodystonic worries that are normal worries, meaning they're objective. Most people would arrive at them. They arose from present moment evidence. They were not imagined, but they can be egodystonic mm -hmm. for this person. And they're like, I, I would hit my hand with a hammer if you promised me it would make these thoughts stop. So again, it's idiosyncratic, you know? And so where do we have a reliable and truly precise way to draw these lines. I'm going to sit down at the table and hold, hold my sign up that says, you know, tell me I'm wrong. That <laughs> Which I actually sent you that to yeah, on my side. <laughs> you did. Compulsions don't do it. Yeah. Right. They're by themselves clunky. Ego dystonic, ego syntonic by themselves clunky. If you add them together, maybe you get a little bit closer to a precise separation, but then not really so much. I think what seems to, to be potent for me, for whatever reason, I think it's because it tracks, it's, it's empirical, is that defining an obsession through inferential confusion, which reliably separates out from other disorders, is a fantastic way to establish whether something's OCD or whether something's GAD. And when we start getting into the weeds of these other things, I, we, we start to we, we start to find the tension. We start to find the yes, but. Yeah, but it could be egodystonic or it could be egosyntonic. Yeah, but this is a compulsion or is it a safety behavior or is it, or is it some other kind of just repetitive thing that is a soothing behavior? Yeah, but if you look at it from an inferential confusion, then there isn't a yeah, but. Once you understand inferential confusion, it's pretty clear. This person has arrived at this conclusion, right? through imagined, possibility-based, reverse reasoning processes, all of which are highly specific to OCD and, again, in, empirical. So I think as the data continues to mount, as we start to understand the nuances of inferential confusion, because they haven't measured all aspects of it, we will get more and more clarity. But that's my argument here is, is that for us clinicians who like to navel-gaze at the difference between GAD and OCD and figure out ways to sort of reliably predict those differences, I don't know that there is a better, more reliable precision instrument than yeah. inferential confusion. Well, and my brain, as you would say, like I, from you, is Olympic level good at being able to find those but what ifs. Call it a thorough researcher, call it OCD, call it whatever you want. Uh, it's functional for me sometimes. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it is interesting. And it's one of the things I've appreciated about inferential confusion. There's not a simple way, because it's, it's a very meaty concept, to review what inferential confusion is. But for our listeners who are like, I 
don't know exactly what you mean by inferential confusion. And I would encourage folks to go back. Last time, actually, very first understanding of inferential confusion came from Mike as well. Um, and of course, the treatment manual and all of that for ICBT. But for newer listeners kind of tuning into this conversation, or maybe people that haven't learned ICBT yet and aren't as familiar with inferential confusion, to the degree possible that we could kind of give it a nice little definition here. Sure. Could you just well, find Every it time I try to sort of create a, a definition of inferential confusion that is incredibly user-friendly to consumers, it turns into being more of a conversation than I it know. is a strict definition. So I think we're still going to leave a little bit of people going, I still don't get it, which is totally fine. It, you such have to dig your teeth into it. But yeah. So inferential confusion is... Let's break it down, right? It's an inference is a reasoning. It, inference means conclusion, right? It's a, it's a way of arriving at a conclusion. So confused conclusions. Confused. <laughs> right? I like that. Right. <laughs> confused conclusions about the present moment and yeah. about myself in the present moment. Right. So a confused conclusion. And I, I beat this example to death, but the person with hit and run OCD right? Drives over the same pothole that a hundred other people drove over, but comes to a different conclusion than the other 99 or hundred people who drove over it, right? Everyone else said, what if I pop my tire or break my rim, mm -hmm. right? But this person concludes something different, mm -hmm. right? They infer something different, right? And it's, it's done so in a way that is fundamentally confused, not normal. And so then we have to break down what normal means. Right. Mm -hmm. So normal reasoning versus not normal reasoning. So the person arrived at it through possibilities, right? Absent direct evidence, mm -hmm. just possibilities, possibilities that were desperately justified through private experiences, through facts out of context, right? Through hearsay, but no direct present moment evidence in the here and now that it was a person in the pothole. Right. Right. And so it, it, it exists in one's imagination. So inferential confusion is simply a narrative reasoning style that's faulty. So your conclusion is fundamentally faulty. And it's unique to OCD in that when we look at people who have high levels of inferential confusion, it selects out other disorders. Right. Yeah. And that's not to say that there aren't OCD-related disorders that have high levels of inferential confusion, too. Eating disorders seems to do this. BDD seems to do this and possibly hoarding. And maybe we find out that, that there's other factors as we get better at measuring aspects of inferential confusion. But as it stands, the last 25 years of research on inferential confusion has been pretty clear. Yeah. And so I'm happy to answer any anticipated confusions you might have from your listeners about what I just said. But yeah, confused conclusion that came from a reasoning process. And there are elements of how that reasoning process was constructed yeah. that make it fundamentally confused and not, quote, normal. Yeah. I, and I would encourage, too, if anybody is interested in learning more, there are a lot of resources at icbt.online. A lot of helpful infographics, sometimes just kind of seeing that in an infographic can help kind of break it down and go, oh, okay, I see that. Also, we have two episodes from last year in December on ICBT. I've had a number of different people 
on the podcast talking about ICBT, including Fred, one of the co-founders, who was on the second episode of this season. And so, and I actually thought he did a, a pretty good job as zoomed in as he would be as one of the co-founders of breaking it down, kind of zooming out as well. And so it is kind of a meaty concept. I also have a water cooler chat about it that demonstrates or shows that. But for the purpose of this conversation, we're talking about the distinguishing factor, a better distinguishing factor between GAD, GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder, and OCD as being this concept of inferential confusion. And when you were sharing the last time you were here with us about inferential confusion, you were very mindful of distinguishing the inferential confusion was not necessarily an issue with perception and how you perceive the world, but was really a reasoning error. And can you speak a little bit to that? Because I am I'm gonna build off of this, but I want I want to make sure that I could give people a little bit of of that clarity as well around inferential confusion. Right. So in inferential confusion and the idea of of perception. So part of the definition is a distrust of one's senses mm -hmm. is a part of the definition mm -hmm. of inferential confusion. And so it's not that they have good reason to distrust their senses, right? It's that they distrust them despite no good reason, right? So what my eyes tell me correct things everywhere else in my life. They tell me when the light is red and when the light is green. They tell me when there's a deer in the road and when there's not. They tell me when the meat is cooked through and when it's not. But I'm going to distrust my senses here, even though I trust it everywhere else, mm -hmm. right? So there isn't a problem in the way your eyes work if you have OCD or your ears work. or your the OCD is defined by your senses having a problem, right? OCD is defined by whether or not you trust those same perceptual feelers mm -hmm. that construct reality. Because again, there's no other way to know or construct reality than to perceive through our five senses. You distrust it here, even though you trust it over here. And you'll actually see that discrepancy in your own life. You're like, I, I trust my hearing and my sight here. Like when I'm crossing a road and I'm looking and listening to see if a car's coming. I managed to cross the road because I trust what my eyes and ears are telling me, but I don't trust my eyes and ear when the faucet's off or not, mm -hmm. right? So I stare at the faucet for five straight minutes and I, and I have to run my hand under it. I wonder if I'm feeling cool or if it's wet. I don't trust my senses here, but I trust them everywhere else, which is, again, part of the definition of, of inferential confusion. So do people with OCD have a perception problem? No. No, there's no good evidence to suggest they have a perception problem. Does people with OCD distrust their senses in highly specific areas? Yes. Yeah. Without good reason. Yeah. And so in terms of thinking about this, one of the analogies that you used last time we chatted on, on this subject, you used the old mall photos, right? In terms of like you see one piece of art. But you learn if you look at it a different way, you can actually see another image pop out. I actually saw this come across my Facebook feed within the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to put it on the blog over at OCD Family Podcast as well. I don't know if you've seen this one, Mike, but it's two girls sitting there. Have you seen this one? I have not. No. Ooh, this will be fun. 
This will be in real time for any of people listening. They'll be like, hey, <laughs> I love you squinting and I get to see this in real time, too. It's easier on a phone, I will say. I'm like wondering okay. how the I mean, I can see it on the computer, too, but it's it is a little different. OK. Do you see something else? Yeah, I don't. Not yet. I just see two two girls. Try this is going to. I'm going to say try maybe the squint, but try like turning your head a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if that changes it for you. Like the angle that you feel looking at it. Do you see something else? I don't. You're like, I'm like, damn this it. Is, this isn't working. What's funny is, is I feel like this is one of those like stress induction. You're like, <laughs> you're like, all right. Mike just talked about the use of his senses being trust. I'm going to give him this, this image that clearly everyone in the world sees the difference except for him <laughs> and now i'm having like a sweat attack that i'm failed nichols test i'm sorry i love i love it not that you're feeling it's <laughs> such a good therapist aren't i no I, I what i would say is no I, what i love about it is we're showing our work it doesn't always pop out at the same time to be fair i can see it because i know what i'm looking for which is part of the point right but I do think it's easier doing this on a phone than it probably is a computer. But I can see it on the computer. I kind of had to. Okay, let me let me give you a different focal point. Maybe I can guide this. Okay, I want you to focus on the blonde girl, and squint and move out. Maybe tilt your head. Do you see in her hair? I do see the waves in her uh -huh. hair. Yes. Do you see how one of the or the shadow effect kind of goes down? I see the shadow, yes. Okay. Does it kind of imagine, could you see eyes in potentially? I'm, I'm totally raising your blood pressure probably. I'm sorry. I'm enjoying it. I'm sorry. Oh. I really think I need to use this on the phone. I think maybe you do need to use it on the phone. I, I'm just not seeing, I'm just not seeing it. Perhaps, perhaps this is sort of like trying to help people understand the idea of looking at something through an inferential confusion lens. It can maybe it's it's this taxing for some people. Yeah. Um, What's funny is it's like once you see it, you can't like unsee it, and once you right. and when you can't see it, you can't see it. We use this analogy of the old mall photo, but I I was like I don't know that that would work online, and then I saw this and I was like oh I can use this location. If you're okay with me including it. Oh, yeah, it's totally fine. And I'm sure this is just redundant, but the the concept or the metaphor of using the image where you like you stare at it from the front. Yeah. Right. And it just looks like it just looks like a standard photo. Right. Yeah. And then and if you if you if you unfocus your eyes and you look at a different focal point, you can actually see a sailboat. Which wasn't there before. Right. And I just remember those were kind of a, the rage back in the 90s at the mall. They were. Um, and I forget what they were called, but whatever they were called, I I remember getting very frustrated because I couldn't see what other people were telling me to see. That eventually I got it. Uh-huh. And, and I guess my point with all of that yeah. is that neither image is wrong. Right. But both exist if you know how to look for it. Yeah. And And so when we look... You know, if if we're looking at at a, at a phenomena like yeah. worry or or OCD through the lens of CBT ERP, yeah. it looks like one thing. Yeah. 
But if we understand inferential confusion, we look at that photo again, it looks like a different thing. And to me, that is incredibly valuable because it adds a, a different layer of understanding of the phenomenon, a different avenue for treatment. And again, like you said, you can't unsee it. So now you're looking like, oh, wow, look at this. This is, this is actually a really useful way to, to draw distinctions. Yeah. And I really have to try hard to see the two girls. Honestly. Well, <laughs> what do you see? To, you know, so now you're piquing my interest. I know. Think you're going to like text me later and be like, oh my gosh, I see yeah. it. It's the phone. I needed to see it on the phone. You might need to see it on the phone first and play with angles. But once you see it, I see a face in place, almost like a statue. Like uh, imagine you're in Italy looking at art, these fine statues, right? Almost that kind of statuesque face being spoon-waddled by the other girl. Like, it's just kind of, like, all up okay. in it. That's what I see. And if you're looking at the photo that he's seeing, you're like, what? That's different. <laughs> That's a different yeah. photo. I'll pull it up on my phone later, and I'll text you if, if, I, if I see it, and that way I can feel like I'm part of the cool crowd Yeah, no, even that gets if, to see it. But I think, okay, so the broader application is where I'm going with this. You just distinguished before before I stressed you out here with this. But I did this because I thought, oh, well, people listening can look this up more than go back in their time machine and see the really cool mall photos, which we all loved. But what I would say is you were defining the difference between perception and reasoning errors, right? And so you're making the case that when we're talking about inferential confusion, we're talking about not a problem with perception because you are seeing the other things in real life in real time and doing it well, successfully, would say, in, in most areas of your life. But this is a reasoning error. But then I was thinking about it, and maybe I'm like going too heavy into the analogy here, but I was thinking about it. And with something like this picture, are you having a reasoning error if you don't see the statue? Are you having a reasoning error if you just see two girls? Because the two girls are there. I have to struggle to go back and see the two girls, but I can see where you got that. Because objectively, anybody looking at this at first wink would see the two girls. <laughs> Unless they've seen it before, and then they're going to see what I'm seeing. And for anybody else that is maybe having it on the phone, that's probably the magic on this. And if I had pre-said it to you, maybe you would, you would come in and go, yeah, I see you. But looking at it on a computer might be different. However, if you are looking at it here, you can see how it's hard because one could say, actually, my perception of looking at it straight on or upon first glance is that, yes, here's the two girls. But I could also say it's a perception difference, an illusion that there is the face here because the actual content of this picture is two girls sitting next to each other. It's not a face and a girl, right? And so in terms of being able to explain, and I fully am on board and, and, and have seen the usefulness of understanding and diminishing inferential confusion, bringing resolution to folks with OCD. They see the magician's trick. But at the same time, I can hear the argument from the other side going, actually, the trick is trying to see that you can look at it this other way, right? Because objectively, this is two girls. 
And so I don't know if my analogy makes sense, but it this was all a buildup and then <laughs> it kind of fizzled well, a little. If I can comment on the idea, which I would say, what do I want to say about this? I'll echo my earlier point, which uh-huh. is to the degree that drawing a distinction between OCD and GAD is valuable. Yeah. Which it may be. I think it certainly is from a research standpoint. I think it certainly is from probably more important to separate OCD mm-hmm. from a treatment options than it is to sort of separate GAD, but you can't do one without the other. Uh-huh. And so I see value in that and the increased value in having a deeper, wider understanding of what obsessions are. Because mm-hmm. historically we've we've moved on that, right? It used to be like whatever Freud thought they were, I wouldn't even imagine that. And then and then the behaviorists were like everything is conditioning, mm-hmm. right? And that that kind of didn't really fit perfectly. And then in the late 70s, there was the appraisal model where it's all about normal intrusions being sort of misappraised, uh-huh. you know, and perhaps this is another sort of evolution in understanding the phenomenon that is empirical and valuable. And when we apply it to sort of case presentations as mm-hmm. opposed to as opposed to chasing metaphors too far, because again, that <laughs> problem with metaphors is that they're not perfect. You know, they're, they're not perfect. But if you just look at a case and, and you you walk someone back from their compulsion to their obsession, you sort of reverse engineer their their life experience in that moment, if you can help them realize how the obsession was constructed through entirely imagined faulty ways, that mm-hmm. this is not just distressing, mm-hmm. it's false, mm-hmm. right? Is there not value in that? And does that not help draw a distinction between what we might call the worries that come from things that aren't imagined and aren't false? Mm-hmm. And knowing the difference offers treatment options for people. Right. And isn't that what it's all about? Right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I as as you were commenting on this and as I was thinking about it, too, is part of the reason why we even have this discussion. And again, like the main point isn't dying on a hill of of diagnostic criteria as much as are we treating someone with something that's going to help them get better or not? And it gets tricky because we have these concepts like refractory OCD, refractory anxiety, whatnot, where this is more or less a way of saying this is treatment resistant, right? For the general fam listening here going like, what is refractory? <laughs> like, like generally, if someone has refractory OCD, then we maybe have tried a couple different trials of ERP, maybe ICBT too, because again, ICBT is not a fix all either. It's not a cure, but it's a, a good treatment option. Maybe someone has been referred on for deep brain stimulation because there's research around that for these really tough refractory cases. There could be a number of different factors that are explored. But also, are we maybe just missing the point and we've been trying to resolve OCD when really this is GAD or vice versa? And I think vice versa feels a little more... Uh, I will say I could get more of a hyper responsibility around that of not doing harm, wanting to benefit the client and and provide the right treatment. And so I think part of this debate even 
is often for maybe not just lived experience clinicians like myself, but the folks going, okay, we want to make sure that we're providing the right tools and moving the person forward. And so can we speak a little bit more broadly then to that? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I see the opportunity to treat people as like the, the purpose of our profession, obviously. And what's required of us to sort of make those calculations is to understand the phenomenon we're treating, right? Like, right. Right. And so like, what ways do we have to understand the phenomena? And up until a certain point in time, most people would have said, well, here's one way to understand the phenomenon, right? Here's a definition that we've agreed upon and the way we look at the painting. This is the angle. This is the vantage point. This is the correct image. And learning more about the phenomena, mm -hmm. right? Taking, taking steps to, to tell us what factors we can uh, use to explore this phenomenon further. Mm -hmm. And to the degree that, that, that that's meaningful and empirically validated are two really important things. And I think right. when we look at the understanding of the phenomenon, directly informs treatment options, mm -hmm. right? If we kept looking at OCD and kept finding the exact same explanation for the phenomenon, then great. We're all converging on this is the right way, the one way, the most uh, likely way to explain it. It's just not the case. We're looking right. at a phenomenon and there's another way to explain, to it. Ex to explain it. And there's mm -hmm. value there because it offers a treatment option. Right. And that's really the whole point here is, is that while we're exploring treatment options for OCD and understanding the phenomenon of obsessions in a more nuanced way, mm -hmm. it opens up treatment options. And it happens to cast a stronger shadow on other disorders that aren't OCD, mm -hmm. right, from this vantage point, right, from this inferential confusion lens. And that one of those is, is GAD, mm -hmm. right? Because like we have mentioned in our previous meeting, if you tried to use ICBT with fidelity, you went through all 12 modules yeah. with a client, but it was GAD you were treating, you would gaslight your client by module five. Right. Because module five is where we're telling you that this is obsessional doubt, which means that the conclusion is not only irrelevant, mm -hmm. it's false in the here and now. Mm -hmm. But what if that's not true? Right. Right. Then you just gaslight your client. And the, the, the point here would be that that would actually have been GAD if we have to call it something else. Right. This is not obsessional doubt. It's something else. Right. Well, maybe it's worry. I, I really don't care what else you call it. Right. But it's not obsessional doubt. So we can't move past this module because we're going to keep gaslighting. Yeah. Right. Well, and what I would say is, and I don't feel like there's a big danger in that with ICBT, because a lot of the sorting out, as confusing as it can be, <laughs> inferential confusion, the sorting out of, is this relevant in the here and now, is pretty common sense when you get down to it. So you're not going to be like debating with your therapist at module five that getting a cancer diagnosis is actually a bad thing. Like, you're going to be like, yeah, for sure, that sucks, right? Like, you're not going to be going back and forth on the common sense of these different things. There's, it becomes easier to distinguish for the person with inferential confusion after getting some of that psychoed and understanding some of the logic already being used in their story 
that has constructed good stories and good logic for them in other areas of life as well. And so I think unlike something where I think it would be a little trickier, and that's not saying anything bad about ERP, but I think it would be trickier with ERP, like you're going to see some of that common sense difference when you're going through it via ICBT. Because I know, this is me though, my vulnerable self thing would be like, what if I miss something, right? What if I was neglectful? So I, I would... I felt very, very worried about if I'm not doing ERP correctly. ICBT, I think I mainly do a pretty good job of facilitating, but I don't have that same amount of worry. And I think there are some catch and balances, or what is that that phrase? Because you are using relevant here and now, and you're not doing it in a silo. You're doing it with your client, and your client's doing a lot of that really good work too, and you get to help follow and guide that. And so, yeah, it is, it is a bit different. One of the things that we talked about in last week's episode, especially when it comes to mental compulsions, and I think people struggle with this. You brought up the term, which is a little bit of a controversial topic within OCD is this idea of pure O. Some people are like, no, there's no such thing as pure O because mental compulsion is still a compulsion. Other folks will say Puro is having just the obsessions with no compulsion. If we're talking about generalized anxiety, even having compulsions, I don't know how compulsions wouldn't exist if you're dealing with, as some folks would define it, intrusive thoughts or obsessional doubts. And so in terms of thinking about mental compulsion, there was this idea of, is this Puro or is this GAD or Puro and Gad one in the same because we're not talking necessarily about. Yeah, let me clarify any confusion I may have ginned up with that. Like, I don't think Puro descriptively exists, mm-hmm. meaning just obsessions without any form of compulsions, right? Which is if you, if even the first time you're hearing this phrase, you might think, oh, pure obsessional means no compulsions. That I don't think that exists. I think that's pretty clear that, that. What they're meaning is, is that there are covert compulsions, right? Like so mental up, compulsions right. generally, yeah. And, and historically, OCD had once thought to be only behavioral overt compulsions that you could witness. They didn't know about the mental compulsions. But once we figured out that, that people do mental acts as compulsions, the concept of Puro doesn't descriptively accurately represent OCD, mm-hmm. nor do I think it would represent GAD. Again, I don't think GAD is just worry. Right. Period. Right. It is, it is a prompt, what, which is what I'm referring to the what if, and then the worrying, the verb, the action. Mm-hmm. And to me, although that's not in the DSM or the diagnostic manual, that's a useful breakdown that had at one point had convinced me that these are actually very similar to OCD, if not indistinguishable from OCD, mm-hmm. right? And that was my, the first sort of evolution in my learning was GAD and OCD are differences of degree, not differences of kind, right. generically speaking. And it wasn't until I learned in, about inferential confusion where I drew a much more clear distinction between what's obsessional and what's a worry. Mm-hmm. But both have compulsions in the sense I'm putting air quotes around it. Compulsions in the sense that there is an effort, either covert or overt, to fix, to reconcile, to prevent 
to neutralize. We see it with OCD. We see it with GAD. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think the Puro doesn't fit. Now, I know there's a community of people who identify as having Puro in the sense that there is like taboo, taboo obsessions with covert compulsions, not commonly understood not the non-specialist community as looking like OCD. So right. to help people who aren't experts in the OCD community know that OCD can present in numerous ways is useful. It is confusing to perpetuate the idea that somehow there could be a disorder we call OCD where there's just obsessions and no compulsions. I just don't think that that's right. Right. Yeah. And I, and I would agree. And I think we're, I think a lot of, from the community and the client community searching, maybe they have a thought or they have an obsessional doubt. It causes some distress and they Google it and they will come to Puro like, oh yeah, that's the thing I do. Even though Googling in and of itself in that scenario could function as a compulsion. It's one thing if you get it and you're like, oh, okay, that's it. But if you keep perseverating on that, et cetera, yes, it could function as a compulsion. And so in terms of differentiating that, because one of the things we talked about last week was how much of that mental perseveration process is happening in, in GAD. And it's not necessarily a severity issue. But when would, what would it look like then if we have someone that's suffering from severe GAD, but it is not OCD? That's a good question. Again, I'm, if I'm trying to sort of think how would the mental perseveration, the, the mental compulsion, uh, how could that be used to distinguish OCD from GAD? I think it's incredibly unhelpful. Okay. I think it's clunky. Yeah. So I'm going to put that out there. If I were to say that there might be a thread to pull yeah. within a compulsion that mm -hmm. helps you identify that it really is part of OCD as, as opposed to just an overreactive coping mechanism mm -hmm. for worry, that thread would be the feared self story. Is the compulsion trying to protect or prevent you from becoming this person that you're mm. afraid you might become or you secretly might be. I would think, although again, I think we're in somewhat murky territory that within GAD, it's strictly about the stimulus, which is primarily the normal doubt. Mm -hmm. And the attempt is to know whether or not I'm going to have cancer as a result of this biopsy and I can't know. Yeah. Right. But I'm going to desperately try to figure out. Whereas with OCD, the compulsion is almost functioning to neutralize or reconcile, prevent or protect you from becoming this feared self, mm -hmm. right? And that's a whole other exploration into the role of vulnerable self themes or feared possible selves. That's a big part of, of ICBT. So if there's a thread to pull, it would be feared self within the compulsion that might lead you back to an obsessional doubt, mm -hmm. inferential confusion that you might not see leading back to that with someone who has worry. Yeah. And I like how that really, it's been consistent the whole time in terms of your explanation of it. Like it all goes back to how we're defining an obsession. And so if the inferential confusion isn't there, which we do see as a mechanism for the OCD from an ICBT perspective, 
If it's there, then that points to OCD. If it's not, it points more to GAD. Ultimately, our jobs as clinicians is to support the person in living a more functional, value-driven life and moving them forward. What we call it, it does matter, the research does matter, but also in another way, it doesn't if we're getting so caught up in the terminology. The parting thought then I would put toward this, because if we look at DSM language or WHO language for the ICD-10, I, I think it's, 10, what is it, 10-11, or we look at the definitive characteristic that you've been able to distinguish, which for you has been inferential confusion and in how we're defining obsessions and seeing both obsessions and compulsions, not just compulsions, as evidence for OCD. How would you reconcile this for somebody who maybe doesn't get or understand ICBT? There's certainly a lot of great learning that has happened around ERP, particularly in the U.S. and beyond. But also ICBT is a very different way of defining this. And so if you don't have that lens to define this, what can we say that may be helpful for folks in their journey to differentiate. If they're looking at the DSM straight on and they're looking at ERP straight on, then it is going to be harder to distinguish those two, right? So what would we say for folks that are either newer to it or just not exposed to it yet and maybe have other training or other experience outside of ICBT? Like, how might we bridge that towards understanding inferential confusion and how that may be impactful in differentiating the two. So I think if I can summarize your question, how do we help people who don't know about inferential confusion come to learn it, want to know it, to get it? Or see, that or, or see that when, when the diagnostic language is very heavily laden in one treatment perspective. Sure. If you well, I, and I've had clients who've read the diagnostic criteria. They, they've gone through the DSM and said, listen, I, I don't, I have a hard time understanding the difference between these two. And I would say, depending on how we want to understand treatment, it might not matter. Right. Right. So I'll still say that. Like if you're pursuing traditional CBT ERP, I don't know that it matters as much. Right. And that's fine For, at the patient level with this person in my office, what do they need help getting better with? Do they need to understand inferential confusion? Maybe not, right? Could it hurt for them to understand inferential confusion if we're pretty sure we're looking at OCD? I think it can only help. And which means the therapist has to understand inferential confusion, which is one of my big advocacies is trying to disseminate this idea around because it's very valuable for us. But if you're just looking, like you're a layperson and you're just looking at the current criterion, how would you know the difference? I don't know that you would, you know? Yeah. It, it's really subjective. And where you would need to go next is to a professional to help pull those things apart, right? And this is one of the limitations of self-diagnosis, which I'm not opposed to fundamentally. I think self-diagnosis can be really useful, mm -hmm. especially if there's good information based upon it. But when it comes to like things like, is this GAD and worry, or is this OCD and obsessional doubting, you might need a professional to help you distinguish those things, right? Right. right. 
And I think, you know, the piece there, it probably hits more for the professionals for me because, again, it like like we said, you can zoom out and what we call it, as long as we're able to help bring someone to a more functional participation in their life, value-driven living, et cetera, then we're, we're working on the right treatment goals. But at the same time, understanding that is an important piece. And so I guess I'll just end then with a plug because you recently, along with Bronwyn Schroyer, who has been on the podcast as well, were able to start a special interest group through the International OCD Foundation around ICBT. And so this would be a great opportunity for any clinicians out there going, hmm, I wonder if there's something to this inferential confusion piece. It is still confusing. It is confusing, y'all, whether whether it's the first time we've talked about it or not. But if you would want to learn more about this and how this could be helpful in your understanding, in your case conceptualization and in your treatment, being able to offer this perspective and lean in and learn more, the special interest group would be a great resource to learn more about ICBT, right? Yeah, as we're getting up and running, the intention is is to produce content, both written and other media, to help explain the different aspects of ICBT, its underlying theory, its treatment process, its research base. So in the next several months, we're going to see a lot of that coming out through our SIG and hopefully reach a wide audience and, Mm -hmm. and encourage people to see the value of it. And while inferential confusion as a phrase is, you know, not normal for us to hear and can be confusing to try to understand when you just sort of listen to a podcast, it's one of those things where you look at a magician's trick and he goes, man, I don't know how they do that. Mm-hmm. But once you learn it, you, you can't not see it. Yeah. And inferential confusion to me is like that. Like once I get it, and I don't think it's that difficult once we take away some of the sort of graduate level language mm-hmm. and just look at it as like, oh, listen, here, help help you understand it through a couple case examples. And you're like, I get it. It, it just clicks. So that's my, my plug is, is keep, keep reading about it. If you're a clinician listening to this, um, I'm happy to email any emails. You know, you can email me and I'll answer some questions. You can go to icbt.online. You can Look up the SIG when we start putting out stuff um, and the dozens of podcasts that have been out that talk about different aspects of, of ICBT all can sort of add a richness to your understanding of this particular mechanism. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of trainings, too. Uh, if you go to ICBT.online, you can learn about some of the different trainings that are coming up and circulating throughout the year. There's also, as a free resource for clinicians, There is an ICBT Facebook group that's pretty active, and there are a lot of really, really helpful resources in terms of learning and applying ICBT. Nothing overall is going to replace actually going and looking at the research yourself. And so looking into that is really important, but it's it can be hard to wrap your mind around. So we have a lot of really just amazing trainers, U.S. wide, but also worldwide and I, I think there's more mindfulness, too, even being created. And a lot of these trainings are recorded for folks internationally that have a big time change and are like, I can't do a 1 p.m. Eastern. That's a great place to learn, too, for clinicians that are interested in learning more as well. So, you know what, Mike, this, is, this has been great. 
I'm sorry I laughed about uh, not seeing the face. I have confidence that you are going to be like, damn it, I see the face. But I think the, the, that the point is still important. You don't see it until you see it. And that's one of the things I really, really like about the idea of inferential confusion, too. It's really validating that, yes, it is clearly two girls. What are you talking about? You know, it is clearly this. It is so overwhelmingly like the evidence is here that this this is the bad thing happening. And I think it's validating to people with lived experience to go, wow, that was a really convincing trick. It's not that these girls aren't in this picture, but there is also a face in this picture that that you can see. And once you see it, you see it. And it makes you not feel that stress and anxiety when looking at it. You might when you're like, shit, I should see this, right? Like, I don't see it. And so I really do appreciate that I'm still, I'm not fully sure if I can see that as the distinguishing factor, but I can really see where you're coming from. And it is, I think it's something I'm going to need to continue to chew on. And I would hope for all of us, anybody listening, Really valuing your own process and going through that, that journey is going to be really important as you understand, and particularly for practitioners that are going to go out and help others understand. We got to know why we believe what we believe too. So thank you so much for providing lots of time, lots of space for us to come together and have these conversations, Mike. And it's always fun and interesting to have a dialogue about this. So thank you so much for the time. I'm I'm happy to be on, and and these are these are interesting musings about differences between disorders, and I think it's fun. I do I do think there is a larger, more important conversation to be had around what inferential confusion adds to our understanding of obsessions. That that's not just some like interesting musing. No, I think it's an incredibly valuable empirical addition to how we understand an obsession, I do think one day the larger community will be incorporating many of these inferential confusion processes, the language, into what an obsession is. But between OCD and GAD, just a fun little... It is. It's an interesting discussion. And for the family members listening, I think because OCD can go undetected under the radar for so long, sometimes... People feel like, oh, why didn't I know this? This is like stupid. I mean, it's not stupid of you. If you listen to Mike and I, who have been doing therapy for a long time, you you have been more zoomed into OCD for longer, but, but we've both been doing therapy for a long time. Even for us, it's not a clear thing and it's evolved, right? I went from thinking they're very different to very the same. You went from thinking they're on this continuum to seeing the inferential confusion as being very different. And so if anything, I think that gives permission to folks to go like, it's not always easy to sort out, but there's value in being able to have the discussion. It can be fun, but it also can lead to, in the example of inferential confusion, if inferential confusion has never been targeted before and could be, and that could help make a difference, then that's useful having that conversation. And so just like you said before, having more treatment options. And just giving people permission to evolve, both as practitioners, but also as people going like, why didn't I see this? I just thought it was anxious. And going, oh, no, for sure you were anxious, okay? But what was driving that anxiety and being able to get some hope and some mastery over kind of the reasoning process there can be so, so helpful and impactful in treatment. So 
I appreciate it. And I have a feeling at some point I'm going to get an email or a text or something. You're going to be like, I see it. I see the face. <laughs> but even if you don't, you're still in the cool club. We will. We accept you. You're part of the fam here. It's, you don't Thank have to you. see the face to be a part. So thanks again, Mike, and look forward to having further conversations down the road. And you're always welcome to come back here at OCD Family Podcast. Thanks, Nicole. It's been great. Thank you for that. All right, y'all. What a great follow-up conversation with Mike Hetty, LCPC. And he's really got that, that blend of being both super knowledgeable and being really easy on the ears as we talk through these different tricky and confusing concepts. So I always enjoy the time with him and all our other incredible guests, be they professionals, researchers, family members, or folks with lived experience that are willing to come share their time, share their voice, and just be with us here in the OCD family community. So thanks again for taking the time to hang with us today, Mike. Also, to follow up a little bit on what we chatted about earlier, the International OCD Foundation now has that special interest group for practitioners learning ICBT, and we actually just had our first inaugural meeting with co-chairs Mike Hetty and Bronwyn Schroer this past week. But if you're a practitioner using or interested in learning more about ICBT, you can check out iocdf.org and search for ICBT or through their special interest group tab to learn about how you can be a part of that SIG or other dynamic SIG sponsored through IOCDF. And I'm going to link those also directly in this episode's vlog. So if you're like, but I'm out running, I'm sleeping, I'm driving, I'm doing dishes, I got you, boo. Head on over to the blog and, and I'll have a link right there for you. But wait, there's more. There are a myriad of resources, not just here, but over at icbt.online or on ICBT's YouTube channel. We also have podcasters like Christina Orlova and Stuart Ralph doing OCD stories and other folks that are sharing and spreading the word. And so lots and lots of resources. But speaking of ICBT's YouTube channel, y'all, today I was prepping in real time. There was a presentation on differentiating OCD from GAD through the ICBT treatment community. I mean, the stars aligned and the topics could not be more on point. So if you want to take a minute, they recorded that presentation and it was presented by Lauren Spencer, LMFT, and you can find that over at ICBT's YouTube channel. So just go over there, keyword search ICBT. That'll bring it up if you look for Lauren Spencer's video. She is differentiating generalized anxiety disorder from OCD. And if you're like hot off the press listening to this when it's published, I will say it's going to take a minute for it to get uploaded, y'all. But wherever you're trickling in along the way, please feel free to check that out because this conversation or conversations between last week and this week that Mike and I are having, this is an open conversation for all of us to be having. And you know what? Lauren and Mike really aligned. And to me, I like that because I'm like these two independent people that didn't corroborate their understanding. They both came to a similar conclusion. I still feel like I'm not there yet. I think inferential confusion is important. I understand and track fully what Mike's saying. I still don't know if it's not just like another head of the same beast, right? But the good news is we can have these conversations and these are important conversations to be having. So this brings us over then to a uh, application, my 
my charge for you today, fam. And last week, again, if you were with us last week, I, I challenged everybody to kind of think about a thing that was functional enough, maybe not optimal. And for me, I shared that my thing was a 10-speed bicycle. And 10-speed bicycles, presumably, they shift between gears at each speed. That's what I'm guessing. I would surmise. I'll be able to tell you more soon because I'm going to work on that. But I had no idea why or when or the rhyme or the reason to go between speeds. And I would just go. I would just go wherever I'm going on the same speed that it had always been. And I never putz with it the end, right? And so I encouraged us all to think about what our thing is that we just go through. Maybe it's TV remotes where you're like, well, you point this one at the box over here and then you do this one and this one makes the audio come on. This one makes the picture come on. This one connects it to either our streaming service or our cable box or whatever the thing is. And it's like, why? Why do I have eight remotes to do the things? Fam, you know what I'm saying here, right? Like you have somebody come over, but like, how the heck do I even turn on this unit? Where is the unit? Where? Where are the sensors? I don't know what I'm doing. And when you explain it to somebody else, it sounds ridiculous, right? You're like, well, you point this here and you do this kind of at this angle and then you press this and then in sync you do this. And they're like, why can't I just press power? Like, why not? Why don't all the things just work in concert? <laughs> right. And so I encourage people, I encourage the fam here to think of their things because here in the intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of the show for our uh, newer fam in town. I like to leave us all with a way we can apply what we discussed today. And when we have conversations like these, like what is the difference between generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder, it can get really tricky because we're like, uh, this is like a very kind of philosophical conversation where we can be like, I don't know how I apply this. And so I'm going to try. Think about your thing. You've learned it over time and you know it. And even if there was a way to program things or change the sequence or her settings in the controller settings, in the screen settings, in the monitor settings, in a projector settings, and whatever you're using, it feels like, but I know this beast. This is the beast I know. It's inconvenient. It's annoying, but I know this song and dance. I can do it. And so what I'm going to challenge y'all to do, and I'm going to do it too. So like, I'm never going to challenge you to something that I'm not willing to try myself. But for this week, I want us to think about this conversation we've had about generalized anxiety and OCD. I want us to think about if we're addressing the issue and what truly matters. So that is like overall the point, right? Are we pedaling, <laughs> no pun intended with my bicycle over here, and expending endless amounts of energy toward a goal that could be improved? It could be optimized. It could be even met but we're missing the mechanism. We're kind of missing the heart of why this work was required in the first place. I mean, what if there is a more upstream approach where we could resolve some of the confusion around how and why we are juggling all these remotes and how or why it was functioning the way it did? I mean, in that scenario, we could streamline the efficiency, maybe just even use one remote to get the job done. I mean, would it be worth it? We know how to do it the old way. And change, even change for the better, takes some effort and can be hard. It's different. It's not what we're used to. And I would argue, I don't think you can really say whether that is worth it until you've tried it. So my charge to y'all this week is this. Pick your thing, something that works, but maybe takes a lot out of you. And I am just curious, would you be willing to try to see if we could resolve some of the confusion, 
maybe it'll work better. Maybe on paper it would work better, but in actuality it's harder because your brain's not used to processing it that way. Fair. But are we willing to invest a little bit of energy and a little bit of time? Because it might just be a bit easier than juggling those three remotes. It might just be easier to explain when your mother-in-law or babysitter is over and watching the kids how to turn on or off cocoa melon or whatever it is. And it might not. It might feel better sticking to the way that we knew. But could we try? It's one thing to think it. It's another thing to feel it, to try it. For me, this might look like uh, watching a YouTube video or... Just old-fashioned trial and error with those gears. I don't have a 10-speed anymore. I have a 3-speed because uh, it's like an episode of Mom's Gone Wild over here. But I might just experiment going back and forth. Do I feel a difference in the resistance? Is this easier? Oh, is this better for hills? Is this better for coasting? I don't know if I don't try. And I might not notice a difference at all, in which case it doesn't matter which way I do it. Both work, right? There's no wrong answer. But I don't know if I haven't tried. For practitioners that are treating OCD, this might look like, hey, if I do a lot of ERP and don't really know a lot about ICBT, then maybe more than just waiting for more research to come out about this, I'm going to actually try and understand this a little more. Whether I apply it or not in session, whether I try to explain it or not to clients, I'm going to go to a training. We need continuing education credits for license renewal anyway, might as well learn about one of these options that's becoming a bigger and bigger source of chatter in our treatment community. Or vice versa, maybe you do ICBT and you don't know much about ERP or haven't done ERP in a while. Maybe it's considering medication support and partnering with your local doctors, nurse practitioners, psychiatric care providers. Doesn't mean you have to launch into using medication. Understand it better. What are the benefits? What are the challenges? And for our OCD family community and lived experience warriors, this can mean anything to everything y'all have dreamed up. Your thing. Bicycle, remotes, therapy. Maybe you have done a lot of reading, listening, watching content, but never tried therapy for yourself. Could you try a consultation session? Maybe you've only done therapy and you haven't looked for a community or a village outside of that. But I encourage you to explore this week. And this may require you giving more than one or two trials to really give it a fair shot. We might need to give it a couple tries. But that's my charge to you this week, fam. And I'm going to report back next week on how my bicycling adventures have gone. But for now, for now, it's a choice. And I believe that. It, It is. It's a choice that I'm going to have an open stance and do a bit of exploring this week. And for you, fam, I hope you're able to explore too. So let's get out there. Let's live. Let's do this. And then come back because we're just getting started here in season two and we're better together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like trying something new with our family crew. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.